0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We continue to cover the police killing of a young black man in Colorado Springs. Devon Bailey was shot in the back after running from officers who were investigating an armed robbery. Today, the attorney for Bailey's family says Bailey's being portrayed unfairly.
1: I've seen people... Really without basis describe Devon as a thug or a criminal.
0: His family's renewing their call for an independent investigation. Then spruce beetles help shape Colorado's forests in ways you might like and in ways you might not, but it's clear a warming climate means these insects are likely to infest more trees. Also coming up. A visit to the tea house in Denver shipped from Japan 40 years ago, and the flourishing bonsai garden next door. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An attorney for the family of Devon Bailey says the 19 year old African American shot and killed by Colorado Springs police this month has been maligned following his death. Attorney Darrell Kilmer spoke with me Monday.
1: Obviously, uh, the killing of Devon Bailey has had a lot of coverage in the media and commentary in our communities, and I've seen people really without basis describe Devon as a thug or a criminal or a hardened criminal, things of that nature, which are obviously very disparaging and insulting. And the truth of the matter is, Devon has never been convicted of any crime. He's a young man, 19 years old, almost 20 at the time of his killing. But... He had never been convicted of anything, either as a juvenile or uh, as an adult. He had a couple previous arrests a few years ago, juvenile arrests, but those were dismissed by the district attorney after a review of the charges. I mean, not even after a trial or anything. And there was a pending charge at the time Devon was killed that he had, sadly, only a week before his killing, had entered his not guilty plea to the sex assault charges and was vigorously contesting those.
0: There were three felony charges uh, with that, including sexual assault on a child by someone in a position of trust, a fairly yes. serious charges you'd, you'd acknowledge.
1: Oh, well, those are serious charges, no doubt. The allegations were not at all being dismissive of those. And you say there are three felony charges, but there are three events of the same thing, allegations that there was sexual contact on a person three times, But they were all brought in the same prosecution. Those are the ones Devon had entered a plea of not guilty. Apparently, a trial had been set for January of 2020, and Devon was strenuously contesting those allegations.
0: I know that the family has called for an independent investigation. So the investigation thus far has been the El Paso County Sheriff's Department doing a review of the Colorado Springs Police Department. Say more about why you want an independent investigation and whether you've heard anything on that front.
1: It would be almost laughable if it weren't so serious to have the El Paso County Attorney's Office investigating the Colorado Springs Police Department. There's such hand-in-glove and friendly uh, law enforcement agencies to one another that you can't even hope to have a credible and independent investigation. For example, the former chief of the Colorado Springs Police Department, Pete Carey, was chief there as recently as March this year. He resigned and went over and is now the under sheriff at the El Paso County Attorney's Office. So when somebody dies at the hands of the Colorado Springs Police Department, they hand it over to their friends at the El Paso County Attorney's Office to provide clearance for them, and that happens every time when there's a a death. And vice versa, by the way. That's not fair. That's not transparent. And that's not even good for the police, by the way. The police would benefit from a truly independent investigation if they believe that their conduct was proper. So the family is demanding, at least requesting, that the investigation be turned over to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. That's a statewide agency that has much better experience and credentials, but most importantly, independence, to do the investigation. And after the investigation, we believe it should be turned over to the Colorado Attorney General's office to make an independent prosecutorial decision as to whether charges should be brought against the officers and what those charges would be.
0: How is uh, Devon Bailey's family doing?
1: Devon's family is uh, obviously devastated. It was only last week that they were able to uh, have a funeral and bury Devon. That was on Friday. And for some reason, the Colorado Springs Police Department thought that was a good day, the day of the most profound mourning of his family and friends, that they would put these officers right back on the street. I I cannot imagine. I mean, that's just was such a mean-spirited poor way to make that decision. Uh, I think it's a bad decision anyway, but it also was completely thoughtless with respect to how Devon's
0: family is doing. Let me say, so Friday afternoon, the officers involved in the shooting were restored to full duty. And was there any contact with Devon's family by law enforcement that you know of prior to that decision?
1: No. We learned it actually from a reporter that the city did not tell Devon's family or his legal representatives that they had decided that that was the day they decided to put the police right back on the street.
0: I want to ask you about some larger trends, some of them economic in Colorado Springs that we heard reflected from the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in that area, which is that Colorado Springs is a city, as many cities are, of contrasts, economic contrasts, and that You know, some neighborhoods are very poor and struggling and some neighborhoods are not. And that that might be reflected in tensions in the springs. It might be reflected in the quality of law enforcement in those places. Is there anything you'd like to say about the broader conditions of Colorado Springs that you think serve as an important backdrop here?
1: Sure. I think Colorado Springs has had a recent history even of very troubling policing. Just this year, there have been at least five police shootings and killings in Colorado Springs. Over the last two years, there have been even more than that. And this policing and law enforcement in that community has been uh, racially disproportionate. It's been falling much, much more harshly on communities of color. Last year, in 2018... Jeffrey Melvin, an African-American young man, was killed by Colorado Springs Police Department by literally being tased to death. He had done nothing wrong. Uh, They were chasing him just because they wanted to question him, and they they tased him multiple times, and he died. El Paso County Sheriff's Department uh, deputies killed DeRamus Lemuel last year around August uh, up at the jail, just during the course of booking him in on a standard garden variety arrest. It was a drug arrest, but nothing all that serious. He was unarmed, but he ended up dead under the weight of multiple deputy sheriffs. This has been a disturbing pattern, and we think that it's manifested again with Devon Bailey's shooting and killing in the back.
0: The video uh, that depicts that, um, very graphic, very difficult to watch. One thought that I had early on in watching it was, why did he run? I wonder if you have considered that, if the family has considered that. It is the pivotal moment at which this potential arrest turns into something that took Devon Bailey's life.
1: Well, why did Devon run? I mean, it would be presumptuous of me to be inside the mind of a 19-year-old young African-American man when confronted with police. So, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, he didn't live to give any explanation because he was shot in the back before he could make it even 10 steps uh, and killed. I could imagine a number of reasons a young man in that circumstance would run. Uh, Sadly, African-American young men have had very difficult experiences when confronted with police. I know several uh, African-American parents advising their children that if police show up, you're much better off in a better place. You should leave the situation if you can. It did turn out that Devon had a gun on his uh, person, and he may have wanted to get out of the situation instead of being caught with a gun, particularly since he was on bond from those charges we already talked about. And the officers didn't have to shoot him in the back. Our Constitution stops police from just resorting immediately to deadly force just because they don't want somebody to get away. Our system of freedoms is such that it's better that certain people get away, at least for the moment, than to kill them.
0: Do you know if Devon Bailey uh, had his gun legally? I don't know. Is that something that you're looking into?
1: Well, I mean, we will discover that in the course of our investigation. We are trying uh, mightily to get information from the city of Colorado Springs and El Paso County on this investigation. The public narrative here is being driven entirely by the city, and that's unfair. They should be doing an independent investigation.
0: Thank you for your time. Thank you. Attorney Darrell Kilmer represents the family of Devon Bailey, who was killed by Colorado Springs Police this month. We sought comment from CSPD on numerous points, one specific to the case and ones about policing in general the department declined to comment, there is a standing invitation for Colorado Springs Police to join us. They did provide the state statute laying out how officer-involved shootings are to be investigated, and relying on their colleagues in the El Paso County Sheriff's Office puts them in compliance. But the law also allows them to choose another agency, including the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Let's hear some feedback now on our coverage of the Bailey case in Loud and Clear. Two listeners took exception to our interview Friday with former Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey. He talked about what goes into deciding if a police officer should be charged in a shooting. Charles Greenwood of Denver tweeted that Morrissey, in his 12 years as DA, never prosecuted an officer for an on-duty shooting. That is true, but it's not exclusive to Morrissey. As we know, there are many high-profile cases nationally in which police are not charged, and because of that rarity, we were interested in getting a DA's view. Morrissey notes that even when officers are charged, a conviction isn't a guarantee. The last two Denver officers charged in on-duty shootings in 1977 and then 92 were acquitted. We attended a Japanese tea ceremony the other day. Guests hold bowls close to their mouths, and the host tells them what to do when they get to the last sip of matcha.
2: Last sip is <laughs> everything to drink all. Otherwise, cannot examine the bowl.
0: She encourages slurping, getting every last drop so guests can appreciate the bottom of their decorative bowls. This is the Japanese tea house at the Denver Botanic Gardens, and we've come to understand how Japanese gardens came to Denver 40 years ago. This tea house was built in Japan, disassembled, and rebuilt here. There's also the nearby Koi Pond and the Bonsai Pavilion, which was added more recently. Surgically snipping away at a tree is bonsai specialist Larry Jackal. He's working on a California live oak that was recently donated to the Botanic Gardens.
2: We sort of think of it as we're primping it for the prom, the last perfect little trim before it's ready to go on display. What is bonsai anyway? Bonsai is a combination of two Japanese words. Bon is a pot. Sai is an arrangement or a plant. So we've got a plant in a pot. And this is
0: also therapy, it's also meditation. It might for some be spirituality and, and integral
2: as well to the Japanese gardens. I find that when I work on a tree, time goes by in a hurry and it's almost always pleasant time to be quietly working with a tree. Are you working on the tree or is the tree working on you, Larry? Well, it's one of the questions I always pose to the people that ask, how long has a tree been in training? And I always suggest that maybe it's the tree that's doing the training. What does that mean, a tree in training? So from the time an artist, a bonsai artist, acquires a plant that he wants to make into a bonsai, that's pretty much the start of the training period. It can go on. We have trees here that have been in training since the 70s. We have trees here that have been in training for two or three years. A lot of these trees, I understand, come from Colorado. Most of our collection, the core part of our collection, are conifers and other plants from the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And how did they get here, and how did Denver come to be any kind of locust for bonsai? So, the Rocky Mountain Bonsai Society is a group of people that have come together. And one of the things that the old Japanese passed on to us after the late 40s was that there were wonderful material to find growing naturally in the mountains. So with permits on public land or permission on private lands, we would go and find trees, mostly trees that were captured in rock or in basins that had just clung to life for a long time. we very, very old looking. We would try to collect those and bring them back and start to develop them as bonsai. You referenced
0: that Japanese knowledge from earlier in Colorado history Uh, It strikes me that the Japanese gardens, the bonsai collection dates
2: back to some pretty painful history here. Most of the old senseis, the Japanese Americans that came to our club were here in the forties. There were a few in our club that we know of that were entered, but when the war was over and they started collecting, they became active gardeners creating their own private gardens in their houses filled with wild plants and bonsai. What's the oldest tree, do you think, in the collection? We're guessing uh, that it's over 300 years old. So that tree would be growing when the Europeans came to North America for the first time. But the question that I will always pose to people that ask about it is how old does it look to you now?
0: The nature, of course, of trees in pots is that they seem baby, they seem quite wee, right? So I can imagine thinking that they're 20 or
2: 30 years old. We want to have a tree that looks very healthy all the time. Even if it's 300 years old, we want one that's growing a lot so we can manage and manipulate the new growth to make it look better every year. I'd love to talk just a little more broadly about the Japanese
0: gardens themselves. Designed by Koichi Kawana, quite the well-known architect, poet, garden designer, Uh, from Japan and Denver was somehow lucky enough to kind of land him
2: to design their gardens. He actually was involved with a series of gardens across the country at that time. And you're right, we were very fortunate to be able to have him come here. It's the smallest garden of all the gardens in the country that he's designed, but it had probably what I think of as the most talented or beautiful trees because the pines that we collected were all wild trees from the mountains. These are called the Shofuen Gardens. What does that mean? The garden of pine and wind. So if you've ever been in the mountains on a windy day and hear the wind going through a ponderosa pine forest, you know what we're talking about. Oh, how lovely to have a word that captures that feeling. Yes, so all of the pines in the Japanese garden and a number of them in our collection are ponderosa pines, the dominant pine of the Front Range. So There are times when it's a windy day and you stand in the garden and you can hear that kind of a whistling, growling sound going through the the needles of a pine tree.
0: We talked about training trees. What are the tools to train a tree? A tree seems to
2: me a very wild thing. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to style it in an asymmetrical sort of unbalanced look and also a look that has a rounded domed top on it to make it feel like it's older. So tools, just as simple as a pair of garden scissors, but then we'll also wrap wire, copper or aluminum wire around a branch as a tool.
0: This reminds me of when I was a teenager and I had braces.
2: Pretty much the same thing. Your teeth are much more aesthetically pleasing now, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you still have to learn about bonsai? I tell people that if I was writing a book and the title was How to Do Bonsai, it would have 10,000 pages in it, and I'd be adding new pages of information as the tree teaches me things every day. That's one of the reasons I really like it. There's always something new to look at and try to do with a tree. What can a tree teach you? Patience, perseverance. When I look at some of these trees that have old dead wood on them and I know that they have struggled against the elements many years of their lives that they continue to grow when things got tough. When life gets tough here, we continue on. And the same thing happens with our trees. It's a very great lesson. Larry, thanks so much for being with us. You're quite welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Larry
0: Jackal is the Bonsai Specialist at the Denver Botanic Gardens. The Shofuen Japanese Gardens are 40 years old. (laughs) At least 10 cyclists have died in traffic collisions across Colorado so far this year. Research shows infrastructure like bike lanes is the best way to keep both motorists and cyclists safe. But communities wrestle with where that belongs. Take Colorado Springs, for example, says CPR
3: transportation reporter
0: Nathaniel Minor.
3: Cascade Avenue is a stately parkway lined with tall trees as it runs through Colorado College to downtown Colorado Springs. I'm here with Corey Sutella, a local bike advocate, and we're riding down its new bike lane.
4: You know, it's not, it's not perfect. I probably would prefer to be off a street and, and um, away from the cars completely, but you can't do that everywhere. And so for as far as, as on-street infrastructure goes, this is, this is pretty comfortable.
3: The city of Colorado Springs planned this bike lane for a long time. Sutella says it's part of a bigger vision.
4: We are trying to make a network that encourages our community to ride. So it's got to be safe for for anyone, even if they're not really a biker.
3: But adding bike infrastructure is more complicated than painting new lines or installing lane barriers, especially when those bike lanes come at the expense of car lanes. Rick Villa is a retired photographer who fought against the bike lane plan for years. We drive up Cascade in his aging Honda. He says for most residents here and in cities across Colorado, roads exist so they can get across town as quickly as possible in a car.
0: The vast majority of people, in order to go and get from point A to point B, they want to use their car in order to do that.
3: Via was afraid losing a lane would lead to delays, though city planners say it hasn't. Via even admits that the new bike lanes haven't really hurt his ability to get around, but he still doesn't like them.
0: Yeah, I'm highly offended by, you know, the the fact that somebody wants to try to get me out of my car uh, and force me into a bicycle.
3: And in that regard, this debate is about much more than bike lanes. Via says overzealous planners are trying to change the character of the city. In Colorado Springs, the woman who embodied that change is Kathleen Crager. She's the city's former traffic engineer. She says she was indeed trying to change drivers' behavior. She wanted them to slow down, to keep them safe.
1: There's nothing that will quite take your breath away Like going to a fatal accident in the middle of the night and and having to identify what happened and talk to the police about who died and who's gone to the hospital and that type of thing.
3: Kreger started small. She did things like make car lanes narrower and lowered speed limits.
1: I think it took them a while to realize what I was doing.
5: Always pays to be quiet.
3: As the years went on, Kreger stepped up her efforts. She converted a traffic lane into a bike lane on a suburban road, and public outcry was so great that she changed it back. And then the Cascade Avenue project went into motion.
2: You cannot change the character of a neighborhood this way. You have ulterior motives for this road change plan.
3: She took a lot of heat at neighborhood meetings, like this one last spring.
2: There is no reason to put so many bike lanes in such a small area.
3: Some in the neighborhood even filed a lawsuit trying to stop the bike lane, but it went ahead anyway. And Crager says it's resulted in more bicycle use and lower speeds.
5: So
1: you're getting a safer street. You're getting streets that bikes can use as well. And there are a lot of bikes that want to use that street.
3: Crager has since retired and left town. But City Councilwoman Jill Gabler is still pushing for more bike lanes. She's glad the city moved ahead in spite of the backlash.
0: I, I don't think you can ever listen too much, but at some point
6: you have to stop listening and do something, and um, you can't be afraid
5: to do it.
3: The administration has pulled back on adding new bike lanes for now. Staff say they'll focus on things like new signage and education. Those are far less controversial. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Spruce beetles have chopped on
0: about 40% of spruce fir forests in the state, and that's just in the last couple of decades. You can see the most striking damage in Rocky Mountain National Park, the San Juan Mountains, the West Elk Mountains, and the Sawatch Range. Seth Davis is an assistant professor of forestry at Colorado State University. In a recent study, he found that this beetle is benefiting from climate change. He speaks with my colleague,
7: Avery Lill.
6: You didn't set out to study how warmer weather changed beetle behavior. What were you intending to study?
7: So our original interest with this study was just to document where population activity was occurring and to get a good idea of when and where we could trap these beetles for future research purposes.
6: And the study involved collecting 70,000 beetles as well as hourly temperature data. What goes into catching that many beetles?
7: One poor graduate student. (laughs) So, um, no, what what that requires is, you know, a knowledge of some of the pheromone communications of the insect. Um, We place traps essentially all across the state, across the latitude of Colorado. And Isaac Dell, the student on the project, would then service them weekly throughout the growing season. So he would drive up and down from Fort Collins down to Durango uh, on a weekly basis, collecting insects out of these traps.
6: What do those traps look like?
7: They essentially, well, they're called a a funnel trap, and that's exactly what they look like, is lots of different little black funnels stacked on top of each other uh, about three feet high, and we just hang these off of existing vegetation or off of conduit pole.
6: So the study data showed that the winter 2018 was warmer and drier than winter 2017. What did that mean for the spruce beetles?
7: So what that ended up looking like was that we saw an earlier emergence and earlier flight activity across the entire region when the war- winter was warmer and drier. So you saw beetles flying earlier and it went on for longer.
6: And did it also change the size of the beetles at all?
7: It did. Uh, we found that after the warmer winter, the beetles tended to be a little bit larger and the population was more female biased. So we think that that could indicate uh, a higher probability of you know, an outbreak occurring since there would be more fecund females in the population.
6: If these beetles have more time to fly, I'm imagining that means that could change their flight patterns, where they're ending up. What did it mean for that?
7: So we can't speak to that specifically. You know, a longer dispersal period does probably correlate with a higher likelihood of, you know, a wind dispersal event or long distance movement occurring, but typically the entire activity period takes place over about six weeks. So they'll emerge, they'll They'll fly, they'll select hosts, and then they'll colonize them, and usually that's the end of it. But when the summer stays warmer, you also get repeated emergence. So the insects will reemerge, the adults who've already mated will reemerge and fly again and may select and attack new hosts. So this could be a problem for trees in the area.
6: And your study took the next step and combined beetle population and environmental data with climate projection models. What did those models predict?
7: Yeah, so what we realized was that we could basically produce a simple model of beetle flight activity based on the amount of thermal units that it accumulated. So how how warm has it been, you know, throughout the summer? And when we developed that model, we realized we could just use some simple climate change projections to see what that flight period might look like in the future. So we used a really conservative estimate of um, future warming at about 1%. degrees Celsius, which is one of the um, projections for around 2050. And when we applied that model to our model, what it basically suggested was that we were likely to see much earlier flight of beetles and a tendency for longer flight period throughout the region. So sort of the same story, but you know, it, it basically looks like we're likely to see more and continued activity if it warms even a very small amount.
6: Now, I want to go back to what we're seeing now. Bark beetle infestations are a natural part of forest life cycles. Is what we're seeing now different than infestations that have shaped forests for thousands of years?
7: You know, that's hard to say. If you look back in some of the paleoecology records, it's very clear that extremely large outbreaks have occurred in the past and that they do tend to occur on a cyclical basis, particularly the spruce beetle. So we had some very large outbreaks in Colorado, you know, in the 50s that are then coming back around and occurring again in, you know, the, the 2010s. So I would say that it's probably on par with what we've seen in the past. That's a difficult question to, to answer, really. But, um, you know, I, I think these large disturbances and these big outbreaks are, are part of the normal disturbance cycle. The question is really whether or not the forest will recover in the same way after.
6: Tell me a little bit more about that.
7: So, I mean, I, I think these large mortality events are, are relatively, you know, par for the course. But if the climate warms or changes, we may see different vegetation coming back in these areas that have been highly disturbed. So what once was a spruce forest may become repopulated with uh, a pine species that would have been at a lower elevation 50 years ago.
6: So what I'm hearing you saying is that while the beetle infestation, that's pretty natural, climate change could change the way the forest recovers. Correct. So you're actually doing a number of studies right now that focus on that, and one in particular on bees. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing there?
7: Yeah, we're, we're having a lot of fun with this and, and um, you know, I've even created a catchy name that I'm calling Seeing the Forest for the Bees. So uh, the long and short of it is we were interested in what happens to other beneficial insects after these bark beetle outbreaks occur. And so we've been mapping the production of flowers and the response of bee communities over time following these large beetle outbreaks. And so this is one of the silver linings is, you know, we haven't published this data yet, but it does look like at least with the first few years of data that we're seeing an increase in forbs. So an increase in flowering plants and an increase in bee abundances in these areas that have been disturbed by bark beetles. So all things considered, you know, um, these disturbances may be good for bee populations.
6: And how could that be?
7: We think what happens is the dieback of the canopy from the bark beetle allows more light to hit the forest floor and basically allows um, some gaps to open up where forbs could occupy sites that otherwise they would have been shaded out from. So this increase in flowering plants probably associated with, you know, um, greater abundance and diversity of the bee community.
6: So it sounds like a takeaway from this body of research is that there are a lot of so-called winners and losers when it comes to bark beetle infestations.
7: Yeah, I think the common tendency is for people to see tree mortality or changes on the landscape and assume that this must have some negative consequence. But that's really this anthropocentric view, right? The the forest is sick and we need to do something about it. But I think probably the more appropriate view of forest health is to view it as the extent to which natural disturbance processes are occurring within some given range of variation that we find acceptable. you know, So that may be some natural range of variability or defined by some social range of variability. It, it really just depends on the disturbance and, and the location.
6: Fascinating research. Thank you, Seth.
7: You're welcome.
0: Seth Davis speaking with my colleague Avery Lill. Davis is an assistant professor of forest and rangeland stewardship at CSU. He's behind a recent study of how warming temperatures affect spruce beetles. When we come back, a Stapleton reacts to the neighborhood keeping its name. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What would a Buffs game be without CU's mascot, Ralphie? In case you're unfamiliar, Ralphie isn't some college kid in a sweat-soaked buffalo suit. Ralphie is an actual bison. And Sports Illustrated has just named Ralphie one of the top 10 all-time greatest mascots in college football history. She runs on the field before every home game, accompanied by highly trained students known as Ralphie Runners. Last fall, we learned what it's like to run with and take care of Ralphie from one of her runners, Dylan Bernstein. What exactly is a Ralphie Runner? Can you help us understand the job?
4: Yeah. So as as a, you know, Ralphie Handler, we um, dedicate about 20 to 30 hours a week to, you know, caring for Ralphie, but then also to training um, and practicing to actually be able to run uh, with Ralphie.
0: Run with Ralphie as yeah. opposed to having <laughs> Ralphie run roughshod over you, which is a real risk, I have to think. I mean, joking aside.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely risk involved with every run. But uh, in our program, Director John really trains us for, you know, any situation. So I think we all feel very prepared every time we go out there.
0: Prepares you for any situation. Give me an example of a situation you get prepared for with Ralphie.
4: I mean, you know, what we're really doing on every run is just kind of reading, um, you know, her speed, um, you know, how deep she wants to go. I mean, it's really up to her, you know, if she wants to, you know, go 70 yards and then turn, if she wants to go 60 yards and turn. So we're really just, you know, in practice really just trying to read her. Um, and anticipate moves. A, exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. yep.
0: There have been five Ralphies, I think, in CU's history. Yep. And they're always female because of their smaller size?
4: Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's mainly due to size. A male buffalo would be about a 1,000 pounds heavier and uh-huh. about a foot taller, so, <laughs> yeah. Does
0: she ever get nervous before charging the field?
4: I think she definitely, I mean, you can definitely tell she gets really excited um, on game days. You can tell she's she's really ready to run, um, so yeah, I mean, she definitely can hear the crowd noise, uh, on game days. You can really tell that, you know, her speed is a, a little faster. So it's, uh... oh, it's
0: almost Pavlovian. Like she hears the crowd and knows what's coming.
4: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yep. Okay. Yep. I think there will be some listening to this who, who think this is cruel. Uh, this is not kind to the animal. Talk about the care that Ralphie gets, because I right. i know that's part of your job. You've mentioned that.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we're with Ralphie basically every single day. And uh, our program director, John, has been working with Buffalo, I think, you know, for about 20 years. Uh, so, you know, he's really experienced in that field. She has her own personal veterinarians that are always with her. And like I said, we're down there almost every day taking care of her, making sure she has everything she needs. Um, and she actually has a companion buffalo down, uh, you know, at her ranch. She has multiple pastures to graze in. We do, you know, rotational pasture grazing. So she always has fresh things to graze on. So it's really, you know, the best life that a buffalo could ask for.
0: The ranch where she lives is kept a secret, I
2: understand.
4: Yeah. I I think for obvious reasons.
0: Yeah, definitely for her safety. Yep. Mascots have been known to be stolen, <laughs> Yeah. for instance. Okay, we are inevitably going to get the letters from people castigating me for not making the differentiation between a bison or a buffalo. Right. Yeah. Bison, of course, the traditional uh, Western animal. This is a bison,
4: right? Correct. Yep. Yeah, she is a bison, but she is under the classification of American buffalo.
0: Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite Ralphie story? Ah, uh,
4: man. Um... Probably my first run. I mean, just personally, that's my favorite story. Yeah. Um, Definitely my first run. I mean, just being super nervous. Uh, It was the homecoming game. And so the stadium was like the fullest I've ever seen it. So I was extremely nervous. And then to be honest, the whole run was just kind of a blur. I just had so much adrenaline going. And then kind of just right after just, you know, being with all my teammates and then, you know, just kind of hugging each other because it's really... an amazing experience that is just really hard to describe how exhilarating it is.
0: I'm trying to picture what it looks like after the run. How do you calm Ralphie back down and and get her rehandled?
4: Yeah, well, I mean we we you know finish up where she's just running right into her trailer. Oh. Um, so she goes yeah, she goes right in there. Yeah, yep. And she's really good at stopping right in there. So, uh, and she'll usually just turn around and then, you know, she's good to go. And then all the handlers usually, you know, celebrate a little bit, you know, that we're glad that everything went well. So, yeah. What does Ralphie eat? She eats grass hay, about 20, to 25 pounds a day.
0: I just know that part of your job is what comes out on the other end.
4: <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's definitely part of going down there and, uh, you know, just cleaning
0: up. <laughs> is it everything that you'd hoped for? In other words, I wonder if you look back to your young self there at Folsom, hearkening back to how exciting the whole situation was. and uh, think you've come full circle.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely uh, everything I thought it was and, and even more. You know, just being able to be an ambassador for CU, I think is, uh, you know, been, it's been a great experience. And then I just don't really know how many people can say that they've, you know, you know run with the Buffalo before. Yep. Are you going to miss Ralphie? Oh, absolutely. Yep, I definitely will.
0: Do old handlers come back to visit her?
4: All the time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, you yeah, no, so definitely build a bond with her, and uh, I look forward to coming back and seeing her.
0: It's very nice to meet you, Dylan. Thanks so much. I
4: appreciate you for having me on.
0: Dylan Bernstein was a Ralphie runner in his senior year. We spoke last fall. He's now a grad student at CU. Sports Illustrated has just named Ralphie one of the top 10 all-time greatest mascots in college football history. <laughs> ¶¶ What does the name Stapleton mean to you? Maybe you associate it with Denver's old airport, which is now a neighborhood. Well, enough people in that neighborhood connected the name to the Ku Klux Klan that there was a vote whether to keep it. Stapleton is named for former Denver mayor and KKK member Benjamin Stapleton. And by a vote of roughly 65 to 35 percent, property owners in Stapleton decided to stick with the name.
8: Well, I've always said, as the Treasurer of Colorado and then as a candidate for governor, that I thought this was a community decision.
0: So this is Walker Stapleton, Ben's great-grandson. We were curious what he thought of the vote. Generally, he's pleased.
8: It's important when we're all looking back in history, a hundred years, to take full measure of somebody's life and contributions. Because if you're looking for a closet filled with white linen, a hundred years back in people's family tree, you're going to be looking... uh, (laughs) We're going to be looking far and wide because nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. It's inexcusable that he joined that organization, which is, you know, espouses abhorrent points of view. But I think we need to focus more on what brings us together as a community and not what divides us.
0: While he condemns his great-grandfather's Klan involvement, Walker Stapleton points to achievements later in Benjamin's political career that people still benefit from.
8: He built the first airport in the city and county building and the entire park system for the city of Denver, which exists to this day, including Red Rock.
0: Walker Stapleton, whose great-grandfather's last name, will stay attached to an East Denver neighborhood. Well, since a celebrated Western Slope artist died, his family's been trying to preserve his legacy. Dave Davis passed away nearly a year ago. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf filed this from Clifton, Colorado.
5: When Dave Davis bought this property in the early 70s, it wasn't much to speak of. It was very small, um, just a little shack, basically, no running water. His daughter Amanda Davis grew up in this house. It's no longer a humble shack. It has running water now, and multiple add-ons extend the structure both upward and outward. Amanda says her dad, who had a construction background, built nearly all of it. He had to get creative at times. Because he was totally broke when he built the house. Amanda points to a hallway connecting the home's two main sections. It's fashioned from river rocks. And the windows are old TV screens. Then he had some construction friends and they just got together and did it. Quirky motifs like this pop up everywhere, as does his art. Nudes and bright geometric abstracts line the walls. A storage unit out back has cubbies packed with his paintings.
6: He'd have three paintings a day or four. Wow, really? Yeah. I mean, they weren't all great. Sometimes you'd paint over them, but he'd at least do at least three or
1: four a day.
5: He was also a prolific sculptor, interested in all varieties of materials. Wood, metal, pieces of cars and melted glass. Things he'd find in a junkyard or on the street. Amanda says he was exceedingly creative.
6: It was just coming out of him everywhere. And it wasn't just about art. It was about
5: community building, about anything. He was very socially minded. Socially minded in that most everything he did was driven by the desire to help other artists and bring art to as many people as possible. I mean, he bent over backwards on a regular basis for people. Like how he fought tirelessly to make sure local kids had access to art education. Or how he was simply a cheerleader for so many artists. Dave Davis died of natural causes late last summer. His death shocked the community. He was 69 and still so full of life, people told me. One person described him as a tsunami of energy. Amanda was living in New York when she heard the news. She knew she had to move back home. It felt right. She says it also felt right to take up her father's mantle to carry on what he started. Basically, he wanted to create a p- space here where masters connect with apprentices in their field of art, and I would like to continue that. About six months before he died, Dave had set up a nonprofit art school. He named it the Davis Art Process and Media Learning Center. And here's a studio. He mentored young artists in a workshop in his backyard. He taught them his techniques, as well as the ins and outs of the business of art. To understand why Dave Davis is such a revered individual on the Western Slope, why people want to learn his style, we need to rewind several decades. Thirty years
8: ago, I started Art on the Corner. Uh, We were in a very depressed time in Grand Valley after Exxon pulled out.
5: This is Dave Davis himself, featured in a short online documentary talking about the public art program he created called Art on the Corner. In the spring of 1982. Thousands of Exxon workers were laid off after the oil shell industry went belly up. Many packed up and fled the valley. It was a bleak time.
8: One day I was walking my dog downtown on Main Street, and I thought, what could artists do to help this situation? And so I came up with an idea that we should have sculpture down there.
5: He gathered his artist buddies and asked them to loan sculptures for a year. They displayed the artwork in downtown Grand Junction. Sarah Deshaun says there wasn't much public art downtown before Davis stepped in. She's the chair of the Grand Junction Arts and Culture Commission. I was so excited when I came down and saw these fabulous art pieces, these huge sculptures on Main Street. It
6: added such a vibrancy to our community when we didn't really have much right then that was anything to look forward to.
5: It really caught on. Today Art on the Corner features more than a hundred sculptures. Some of the artwork has become part of the city's permanent collection. The rest is for sale and up for about a year. It's been an inspiration for other communities. The city says at least 50 cities or towns have reached out to get information on the outdoor sculpture show. Places like Jackson, Wyoming, Kansas City, Missouri, and Brampton, outside of Toronto and Canada. Painter and friend Gary Hauschels hopes Art on the Corner goes on forever.
1: We come and go, but programs if they're well-developed, stay and then continue to grow. And I think Art in the Corner has definitely reached that status.
5: Grand Junction artist Diana Woods worked with Davis at the Art Center.
2: And so I had the benefit of listening to his visionary dreams.
5: He helped the Center stay afloat during some rough patches by increasing membership, attracting new funders, and getting more people to come through the doors. That's also where another one of his big community projects was born. Sometime around 2010, he had a one-man show there.
6: One of the pieces, he took off the wall and he said to everyone, "Okay, everybody gather around. And there were a couple hundred people there. And he got out the paints. He said, we're going to paint over this piece. And people were just shocked.
5: Davis invited anyone and everyone to paint this five and a half feet high canvas. Then he would cover it with white paint and start the process all over again. He called the project Paint the Piece, it's emblematic of Davis's theories and techniques when it comes to art.
8: Process is the most important thing with the arts.
5: Here's Davis talking about Paint the Peace and a Grand Junction free press video. It's not
8: about doing something that you've done. It's about doing something you haven't done.
5: That means sometimes disregarding formal rules, letting go of self-doubt, and just going for it. The Paint the Piece canvas is at least two inches thick. About 280 layers of paintings. His daughter, Amanda Davis, says at one point... It became so heavy that he had to build a special easel for it because it started to tip over and almost came down on him one day. It sits on that easel at Dave's Clifton home in his backyard studio. Amanda says she painted his ashes into it shortly after he died. And when the piece reaches 500 layers... What he wanted to do was mount it to a south-facing wall and then let the elements unpaint it. For now, she's focused on her father's school because Dave Davis was known around the valley as a great mentor and teacher. Fruta sculptor and painter Pavia Justinian was one of Davis's first apprentices. I owe so much of my own artistic success to him. Justinian and her boyfriend have started using a new word inspired by Davis. We say dave so... <laughs> Anytime we see something that like, makes us think of Dave aesthetically, like maybe some really colorful rust on a car or a beautiful sunset that illuminates the sky with shades of yellow, orange, and red. We say, oh, those are some very Davely colors. And since classes started up again several weeks ago, more artists can learn the Davely way of art in the Grand Valley. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News.
0: And finally today, Colorado music fans may know vocalist Sarah Anderson and guitarist Paul DeHaven as founding members of Denver's indie folk darlings Paper Bird. That band split up in 2017, but Anderson and DeHaven are maintaining their longtime partnership, which they told us predates their 13 years as Paper Birders.
6: Well, I feel like Paul's like the perfect musical teammate for me. Um, We started playing together when I was 18. Right, I mean, it was like right when I was done with high school, oh my we gosh. met. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. And we started a project called New Somme, <laughs> which is
4: French for what? I don't even know.
0: We are. We are. I think I took a, like a French 101 class, yeah. and
4: that was the f- first phrase I knew. So we called the band that.
0: Anderson and De Haven's latest collaboration is called "Heavy Diamond Ring." They describe their vintage sound as road trip music. Think 1970s FM folk rock acts like Fleetwood Mac. Here they are from their recent visit to our performance studio with the track Wild Things. Ooh, ooh,
6: ooh, 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 wild. Missing the day shadow was a friend tiny hairs tiny feet and bright eyes wild things don't need to know everything a blank slate freedom from it all oh the times when time meant nothing the past present and future unknown
0: New music from Heavy Diamond Ring. Their self-titled debut album is out now. They perform Saturday at Little Bear in Evergreen. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.